0: Well, if you would, turn to Nehemiah chapter 8. Nehemiah 8. Actually, the latter part of chapter 7 is where we're going to start. Seven, 733b is where we are. And if you just joined us, let me refresh your memory. Uh, or not, let me expose you to this. For those of us who have been exposed to it, let me refresh your memory since it's 7 o'clock in the morning. The theology of Nehemiah. Number one, it shows the sovereign hand of God and we're gonna, we've are we been seeing that and, and that, is, that theme will be carried forth even in this text we're going to look at there's a call for God's people to remain faithful and then finally full restoration of God's people giving you again a little bit of a timeline in 586 the temple's destroyed in Jerusalem and Jews are taken into captivity actually it occurred before 586 but 586 was the last deportation approximately well that's in 586 in about 440s uh, BC we have a group of Jews who return under the Persians and they rebuild the temple. It ain't what she used to be, but we have a temple under Zerubbabel. And a fellow who comes along shortly thereafter is Ezra, who's a scribe and a priest. And we're going to study Ezra in between Thanksgiving and Christmas. I know most people do Ezra first. And then Nehemiah, uh, COVID kind of changed our plan. But Ezra comes and he's a scribe and a priest. He's, he's, he's seeking reform. 14 years, he's preaching a message And a call for repentance. And we get to Nehemiah. He comes and his role is to rebuild the walls. So Nehemiah and Ezra are contemporaries. We've not seen Ezra's name mentioned in Nehemiah until now. And so if you would look at verse 73b of chapter, this is an unfortunate chapter break that really should be with chapter 8. When the seventh month arrived, this is September, October, so our very time frame is what we're looking at. In October, on the Jewish calendar, what do they celebrate? This is why you do not take a tour of Israel in October. What's being celebrated in October? Anyone know? Yom Kippur, Sukkoth, all right, the, the two major events. And it says, when the seventh month arrived and the Israelites were settled in their cities, and you only need to go back to chapter 7 to see all that have settled. And by the way, as we look at those, that list, especially in verses 66 through approximately 68, 9, well, even up through 71, we're probably looking at about 30 to 50,000 Jews who have settled in the land and have gone back to their cities It says all of the people gathered together in the plaza, which was in front of the water gate, not to be confused with Richard Nixon. (laughs) They asked Ezra the scribe, here he is, first time he's mentioned, uh, to bring the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had commanded Israel. So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, which included men and women, all those able to understand what they heard. This happened in the first day of the seventh month. It's repeated. very important because if we were to study the latter part of chapter 8, we'd realize uh, this is a huge festival that we're entering, period of time. So he read it before the plaza in front of the water gate from dawn till noon, before the men and the women and those who could understand. All the people were eager. I love this, the next line. All the people were eager to hear the book of the law. Isn't that great? Ezra the scribe stood on a towering platform constructed for this purpose. Standing near him on his right, we have six men, and on his left are seven men. And you can read the names and have fun with those. Most of these names, this is the only time they appear in scripture. And we'll talk about that in a minute. Ezra opened the book in plain view of all the people... If you haven't seen the word all, notice it's used several times in this passage. He was elevated above all the people. When he opened the book, all the people stood up. Ezra blessed the Lord, the priest, that blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people replied, Amen, Amen. And they lifted their hands. Then they bowed down and worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Then you have a list of thirteen Levite priests were teaching the people the law so that the people remained standing. They read from the book of God's law, explaining and imparting insight. Thus the people gained understanding from what was read. Then Nehemiah the governor, Ezra the priestly scribe, and the Levites who were imparting understanding to the people said to all of them, The day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. You say, why would they tell them that? Well, the text tells us they were weeping. In verse 10, he said to them, go and eat. I love this. Go eat some baklava, drink some sweet drinks, and send portions to those, watch this, for whom nothing is prepared. For this day is holy to our Lord. The second time it's repeated. Do not grieve, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. Well, let's go back. You've got the notes before you. At least I hope you have the notes. And, and you see here, first of all, as we look at this, and if you see the red dot, remember this is the wall of Jerusalem at the time of Nehemiah. It's been rebuilt, 52 days. The water gate is right here. And, and, and so the crowd would be standing in this area, a gathering, a gathered together. Because you see in your notes under verse 1, Many propose, and in fact I got a quote from one scholar who states that in essence what many scholars argue is the reason they're not meeting in the temple court area is because scripture is is vital to the everyday life. It's central. Yes, it could be simply pragmatic reasons. You're not going to get 30 to 50,000 people up here. This also makes a nice amphitheater. You could be here and the crowd could be going up down the Kidron Valley and up onto the side of this. This, by the way, is what's called the Hill of Offense. This is where Solomon kept his wives or his his, uh, mistresses was right here. All right. And, and so th- it make a natural spot for the crowd together. And again, you can look at that in your notes. The Gihon Spring is right here as well. So you've got a water source. It's a very prominent location uh, on the east side of the walls. Question on the location? Pretty straightforward. Again, we mentioned that Ezra is seen. If you go back to The first part here, 8.1. And as I mentioned in your notes, Ezra was both a scribe and a priest. He's a perfect candidate to be the the leading, the ringleader in reading the text. Turn back to Ezra. I want you to see this Ezra 7. Remember that in the Hebrew scriptures, Ezra Nehemiah is one book. Um, It was divided later, but in... If you pick up a Hebrew Bible, they are combined. In one of Ezra, it says, Now after these things had happened during the reign of King Artaxerxes of Persia. Remember who's Artaxerxes' cupbearer? Yeah, Nehemiah. Ezra came up from Babylon. And then we have his lineage, which is vital because look where that lineage goes in verse 5. He's ultimately the son of Aaron. All right, he's a descendant of Aaron the high priest. His lineage is crystal clear. There is no question. Right, he, he can pull it out and tell you this is exactly who I'm related to. Then Ezra's the one who came up from Babylon. He was a scribe who was skilled. This is verse 6. In the law of Moses which the Lord God of Israel had given. That phrase by the way is repeated um, in, in Nehemiah. The text we just read. The king supplied him with everything he requested for the hand of the Lord was on him. And so Ezra brings a group. He goes up to Jerusalem to teach and, and to seek reform. And we're going to study that when we look at Ezra. But again, 14 years, Ezra has ministered. He is longed for this day. <laughs> He's been praying for restoration and a revival, right, in this country. And I love what Gene Getz wrote in his book, When Your Goals Seem Out of Reach. Look at this quote in the notes. He says, when tempted to be discouraged, remember Ezra. And this is key. Many of you are involved in parachurch or church ministries. It says, remember his weeks and months of prayer and weeping before God, confessing the sins of the people. I mean, just read Ezra. Remember the slow response that it took time to both teach and model obedience to the will of God? I mean, even Nehemiah has to get involved in chapter 5 uh, to try to reform the people, their hearts. It took patience and perseverance, but remember also that eventually the people did respond. It's a glorious moment in Ezra and Nehemiah's uh, life, in their ministry. This very moment chapter 8, we have all of the Israelites gathered saying, please read us the text, and we're eager to learn. It's what it's what every pastor longs for. Here it is. And we're told, notice what the text says here, that that the scribes bring the book, or Ezra brings the book of the law of Moses, again, which God has commanded. Did they read? Read a part or all of the Pentateuch that can be debated nonetheless the law is read now I got a question we'll zip through this we've talked on this one here let me just move ahead with answered prayer here's my question and you've got space in your notes what does importance of reading the law in Nehemiah 8 indicate concerning scripture what do you see in the text just help me out don't interpret just observe what do you see Several things or uh, implications can be drawn from Nehemiah 8 here with the reading of the text. What do you see? Ah, uh, look at okay, the teaching okay, we'll, 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 I'll give you that. Teaching has to be involved twice we're told though that this group can understand and later in, in chapter 8 the text we just read they did understand so teaching is is necessary or involved Both men and women. but okay uh, going back to this first of all what does it tell us about understanding though uh, in the word of god the process is hearing can you understand it Careful! This is a this is what uh, some evangelical scholars will say today. You cannot know Scripture. What does the text tell you? They could understood. I mean, this is key. Don't miss this. It, it's, it's they can understand. Paul states in Acts chapter two with the message. He goes, "You are to know this, and you're to know it with full confidence, full assurance." Right. Uh, Satan's tactic had been in the 1800s and the 1900s to attacking the inspiration of Scripture and inerrancy of Scripture. Now it's the knowability of the text. Well, you can't really know. Which appeals, let me finish, it appeals to the postmodern world that we're in, which argues, well, whatever it means to you is, is relevant. And what do you see here? There is no ability, and... It can be taught. This is vital. You, you catching this? This is key. Uh, if you don't believe me, just go to the Barnes & Noble, if there is any around anymore, and go to the Christian book section or the religious section and, and just pick up some of the books. We were gone last week. I uh, went to the bookstore with my son. And I said, I want to go through the religious section. Oh, I had gasp by the time I was done. I got to get out of here. This is awful, right? All right, what else do you see here in the text? What does it tell you? There's more here. It's holy. I'm sorry? The day was holy. Okay, the day is holy. Go back, just stick to this first part. What do you see about the word? The law, yes? There was a translation. Yeah, we're going to have a translation. What else do you see? It was red. Probably. It was red. Which then they can understand. What's, yeah, there's perseverance. What do you see, though, about the uh, text? The law of Moses, what? What's the line say? Look at the text. If you want to be a good Bible scholar, you got to be able to observe. What's that text tell you? The law of Moses, what? the Lord? What's the Lord? it's been given by God it's 1,000 years since the law has been given by the time they're reading this what does it tell you God still speaks God also speaks through humans Uh, there's human authors let me just give you a side note this is free for Bible study. Observation is key. I remember Howard Hendricks when, we t- when he taught Bible study methods the, the first assignment was you t- had to take Acts 1-8 and make 50 observations from one verse. He said, I don't want to know how many letters are in the verse. All right?" And you came back and of course you could see the students faces. They're like, oh, yeah, 50 observations. I finally did it. He goes, great. I want 50 more next week. Same verse. Acts 1-8. Keep looking at that text. Don't interpret. Just look and you can see. This is key. It's given by God with an implication they can understand the text. Human authors are involved. There is accountability that is required. It's relevant even though it's a thousand years old. And they're able to understand. It. It's binding. I mean, all of this is, is seen here in this text. It's It's key of all the things to do in the midst of the walls done the gates are done do we have a party time of fellowship a praise service no Ezra comes out and what does he do he reads scripture for hours on end if you want to see a revival I will argue it's this this is where it starts. And this is why I love what Iron to Iron is doing. It's vital. Teaching the Word. Studying the Word. And I'm starting to preach, so I'll move on. But you, you get this idea, right? And and so when you do your Bible study, and spend some time. Just set every, it's, you know... It, it, Immediate instinct is to to read a verse and say, okay, how does that apply to my life? Step back a second and and first spend some time just observing. What do you see happening in the text? Don't even interpret. So you don't want to say, well, this suggests or it appears that uh, this connection. No, no, Don't go there even. Just observe. Then you can move to interpret and then eventually application. But if you start with application, you could wind up in one crazy little place. Right? So, observe the text. And as you look at this text, there is so much that's being said about the Word of God, it's unbelievable. In fact, well, anyway, I am going on. So, tap, verse, any other comments? <laughs> God, God enables them. Uh, yeah, God, yes, He does. These people were Babylonian. I mean, we, we like to think of them as Jews, but they have been in Babylonia for 70 years, and Nehemiah was born and raised in Babylonia. These people were Babylonian. They had... They must have had the word with them when when Second Kings takes everything away from them—the temples, the walls, everything—and and Nebuchadnezzar comes through. Somehow they must have taken the scrolls with them. Most scholars would argue. Well, we know from intertestament literature that this is where synagogues started. Uh, before this, the synagogues weren't. Why would you need a synagogue? You go to the temple. But now the temple's gone. You know, and it's also where oral law started to occur. Uh, and so when Jesus comes onto the scene, and there's a debate about when you can divorce someone, that's not in the law this is oral law that has been now and, and tithing etc that keeping the sabbath and all these rules and regulations where did that all arise in the intertestament period why because we're latching on to tradition tradition if you're losing everything that your identity the temple you got to secure this and so this idea that we have a phone game going on you know where it's passed on to generation to generation it's lost uh uh-uh. uh that's a bunch of hogwash I mean, if you think that, look at the, well, now I'm really starting to preach, but look at the Dead Sea Scrolls, right, that were found. You know the Dead Sea Scrolls, 1948, they found about 800, now it's almost 900 fragments uh, or partial scrolls or, or full scroll like Isaiah. Those writings are 200, most of them are first century or 200 B.C., the oldest Hebrew text we had at that point was the Masoretic text at 800 A.D., a thousand years later, and there is very little variance. So this is, though we are a thousand years since Moses delivered that law at the time of Nehemiah, preservation of the text is vital. It's their identity. And, and, and again, look at the importance of the word of God to the people. Anyway. Well, ver- yes, um, Larry. Can we talk about the restricted access to God's word at that point? They brought, was like there was one copy that was kept somewhere. Well, there'd be l- uh, limited scrolls. Um, I'm not sure about the lit- literacy rate at this point, but throughout Jewish history, um, most were literate because uh, you were trained. At least the the boys were. Um but nonetheless uh we we have one still we don 't have a Xerox machine, right, and so scrolls would be limited even in the even in the early English history, right a few hundred years ago, you had the great Bible that was chained to a podium at the church, and that 's where you went to read scripture not everyone had you know how blessed we are to have a multiple Bibles in our house this just wasn 't the case, and the same here. well, verse two states. That someone highlighted this. We don't just have men, but we also have women. I'm reminded of Deuteronomy six that you're you're to teach this to your children, and, and all are to to be brought in and to study this. And so we see, as well as in this reading of the law, that it lasts from early morning until noon. Which again, we're talking probably about six to seven hours. This is a long process. Uh, I, I love it when people complain they have to stand during the worship time. <laughs> they stood the whole time. All right. So it's amazing. I'm sure there was some folks who had to rest. But <laughs> the reading is from a large platform. The, the term here is used of Solomon. And not a lot of people want to, to use it for the temple area. But what we're dealing with. It's the same word that's used at the Solomonic um, period where Solomon stood on that platform and he dedicated the temple. Why do we need a ta- it, The word also could mean tower. Why? You've got 30,000 to 50,000 people. They need to be able to see, and it has to be large enough to accommodate the 13 Yehus that are standing with Nehemiah, right? And whoever they are, that's another discussion, which is in your notes of who are these people? and scholars debate they're either prominent people who have been working with Ezra closely or they are 13 representatives throughout the land and you go why not 12 I don't know right but it's 13 that that have been brought in and again many of these people you're not going to find elsewhere now this is another freebie but I, I just have to show you this the prominence of Scripture in the life of, the, of, of Israel is so vital, even up through the first century. This synagogue was found, oh, um, I wish I could go back, but this synagogue was found in Magdala. It's from the time of Jesus. It's, it was found in about mid-2005, uh, 2006. 2006. This stone sits in the middle of it, and here's a close-up of it. This is where the scroll would have been laid out for the person that is teaching. In other words, 99% certain this, because Jesus, we're told in the Gospels preached throughout the synagogues in the region, uh, Magdala was a very significant city on the Sea of Galilee, 99% certain Jesus used this as his, his pulpit at one point. But the reason I want to show you this, you'll see the carvings around it. They, they show things related to the temple. But what's, what many scholars now are believing, these are wheels. They're arguing it's to show the presence of God. And it, it's tied with the reading of scripture. It was vital. And it's as close as you could get to God's glory apart from the holy of holies, the holiest of holies, is when the scripture is read. And that's why these symbols are used on this pulpit. Isn't that interesting? And all the way back, we see here in Nehemiah, the centrality of scripture being elevated to so that all could see. This, this is preeminent. It's, it's foremost. No, the Israelites did not worship scripture. They worship God. But it's through Scripture that they learned how to worship God and to know Him better. And and that's what's vital here. And they viewed Scripture as directly from God. Right? That is why all the way back in Genesis 3, Satan knew if he's going to undermine God's people, he'll go after God's Word. If I, can, if I can create doubt in what God has stated that you cannot understand and that God is actually not fully involved and humans tainted it, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, you think about it, his modus operandi, Satan's modus operandi has not changed since Genesis 3. If he can go after the word, we're done. And so here we are the importance of the Word of God is seen here in Nehemiah 8 notice how the crowd responds what do you see in the text what do we what do they do they stood what else they wept good what else did they do they they were attentive they praised they lifted their hands which sign of of uh, 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 obedience or submission they responded amen amen they consented to what was being read and they bowed and worshipped they fell on their faces all of these are responses that we see in the text now this passage becomes a little difficult to translate when we get to verse 7 and moving into verse 9 with Nehemiah and the question is Okay, now we, we had the 13 men on the platform, but now we have 13 Levites, that is priests, that are going around teaching. Uh, where are they is number one. And number two, what are they doing while the text is being read? And, and by the way, the, the men that are standing with Ezra probably helped in the reading is what is suspected. They took turns reading the text is what... Some scholars argue. But what do you do with these 13 priests? They appear to be among the people. And the teaching, some scholars argue because rabbinic writing states that what they were doing was translating the Hebrew text into Aramaic. Because just as you noted, they are from Babylon and Aramaic is the native tongue and Hebrew has been lost. And so they're (laughs) translating the text for them. And that's what, again, a rabbinic writing states in interpreting this passage. However, the Hebrew term seems to suggest more than just translate They're actually interpreting and exegeting the text, explaining it to the people as it's being delivered. So they're kind of going along, mingling among the crowd, saying, now you understand what's being said? Let me tell you about this. This is what this is indicating. And so they're they're going among the masses. and That appears to be what's happening here. The confusion then in verse 9 is that when Nehemiah the governor... The, the, the phrase here is they it's like okay who's doing the re- well, they're all involved I think is what Nehemiah is, or the text is stating here that Nehemiah, Ezra, the 13 men that are reading, the 13 Levites together they are presenting the word and together they're helping the people understand and by the way that's the fourth time understanding of the people is highlighted in this short section alright and so that, that appears to be what is taking place here. Again, there is some confusion on it. So as we move, we find that Nehemiah now leads in verse 9, doesn't he? We had Ezra, and now we move to ne- Nehemiah. Again, he takes the lead. And as we see, the people are weeping. And again, scholars debate why. Could it be that... They, they are just overwhelmed with the beauty of God and His Word. That could be. I think there's part of that. There's no doubt about that, right? Um, I think there's nothing more powerful at times than just hear someone reciting Scripture from memory. It's very moving. Um, and, and so there's, there's part of that. Uh, many scholars believe, however, the, the weeping is from remorse, <laughs> guilt. They've blown it. And here God has provided the walls that stands right behind Ezra as he is reading. What they have longed for and there's the temple up the hill. And they're overcome with their own sin. And and God has been so faithful but we have blown it. And, And I think that fits well with what we're seeing here. And Nehemiah's response, it seems so bizarre, right? In the midst of the weeping, I mean, that's when, man, you pass the offering plate around. <laughs> All right? Or ask who's going to go to the mission field, right? Or, or we got a church plant. I need 10 of you to sign up. That's great. No, he doesn't do any of that. He says, <laughs> go fix the baklava, right? Get some delicate delicacies and some sweet drinks. You go, what in the world? Uh, uh, One of my guides in Israel, I absolutely love Avi. He says, uh, you know what we say in Israel? I said, no, what do you say? He goes, they tried to kill us. They didn't. Let's go eat. (laughs) Uh, And he goes, that's the motto, mantra of the Israel, of uh, the Jews. Well, uh, that's kind of the idea here. And at the bottom of your notes, I mentioned that Throughout Israel's history, various festivals and sacred events, etc., there's eating involved. Uh, It's where the Baptists get it, I think. I don't know. Um, This rich fare, the sweet drinks, these luxuries that are seen with celebration. And you go, well, that's, that's really odd. And we'll get to that in a minute, why you would say rejoice and don't weep. But notice it says in verse 10... And you're to give to those that that are needing uh, some provision. And you ask, why didn't they come prepared? Well, it could be they're too poor. Remember, back in chapter 5, they were selling their kids into slavery for money to pay their debts. So it could be they're too poor. Or, it's been a long time since they heard the law. And, and, And all the qualifications are going, oh, wait a minute, didn't realize that. Right? It's like getting that speeding ticket. And you go, well, officer, I I didn't realize it was 30 through here. Uh, It's like, oh, I didn't realize I was supposed to have this. And regardless, what does it show is that they are one community. They provide for one another. There's nothing more beautiful than seeing the body of Christ come together to care for one another. And and that's the idea that's being seen here. And again, it goes back to chapter 5 as well. But Nehemiah says, stop weeping Right? He says, The joy of the Lord is my strength. We could sing the song. Right? The joy of the Lord. You got it? Well, Williamson in his commentary, this is on page three, says, The joy of the Lord was the joy each Israelite felt at these festivals as he identified himself afresh with the community of God's people and so appropriated in his own generation the salvation once bestowed upon his ancestors. Mm -hmm. Nehemiah is saying, Stop weeping. Look what God has done. Today is a day of rejoicing. He has provided this wall. That's what a backdrop, <laughs> and the gate. What a backdrop, right? Which came after the walls, the gates were installed. This is we need to rejoice. Well, let me give you three things to run with as we close, uh, as we takeaways. And these are so obvious I'm embarrassed to give them, but it's just a reminder for all of us. Letter A The importance of expository and theological teaching is vital to the life of the church. All too often, biblical teaching is rudimentary, doctrine is considered divisive, and expository preaching is seen as obsolete. One of the greatest dangers, I think, in, in training our young people is we put the bar so low. And, and uh, I'm going to put Paul on the spot. He was teaching uh, Awana last year, and they were going through Genesis. And I said, Paul, this is, this is great stuff. It's deep. But you know what? They, they rose to the challenge. And I think we can underestimate our young people. We can also underestimate our adults. 2 Timothy chapter 4. Turn there. This is Paul's last words recorded in the New Testament to Tiny Tim. And he tells him in 2 Timothy chapter 4, charge you before God and Christ Jesus who's going to judge the living and the dead. In other words, the end is coming. God is sovereign. And what do we do? Verse 2, preach The message, be ready whether it's convenient or not. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with complete patience and instruction. And then he goes on to state there will be a time when people will not tolerate sound teaching. (laughs) Sound familiar? He's saying, preach the word. Uh, I went to Dallas Seminary and uh, their motto and they've got it engraved on this huge sign in the front lawn in stone. It says, preach the word. And that's, that's the call to the church. It's a call to us. And, uh, well, let me give you a second one here. Secondly... Though the scriptures are thousands of years old, they are still relevant and powerful to our lives today. I love the song, Ancient Words, Tried and True, Changing Me, Changing You. That's it. God's word, and this is from Guthrie, says, this is the central source in which you discover the reality of who you are, of who you were created to be, and of what you are meant to do. And it's important to the word of God. And then finally, let me give you one more. Studying God's word serves to foster greater joy within our hearts there's a quote at the end on page four and page four there's some if you want to do further work this week it's there for you i know a group of you meet to discuss the notes and for, so hopefully that's helpful but look at the quote at the bottom of page four gene gets again i've quoted earlier because he wrote a book on nehemiah it's a great little book it's a he says without the message of the scripture we would have nothing with which to encourage one another we would have no purpose for meeting together our knowledge of God would be so limited we would have no rational object for our faith no doctrine on which to build our hope and no way of even knowing the meaning of genuine love and so go back 440 BC the water gate outside of Jerusalem, a revival is occurring. Why? Because this is being taught. The importance of the word of God. It's a glorious text and a great reminder to us whether we're distributing the text like uh, we are with, uh, Charlie is with the Gideons, or we're teaching it in the pulpit or in parachurch ministries. Preach the word. Father, thank you for your word These ancient (laughs) texts, it's not some phone game where it was passed on and it's been corrupted and we, we, we can't possibly know, nor is it a group of writings that have been so corrupted by the church trying to tease everything out and make it palatable, because we know that's not true. There's embarrassing data in scripture. No, these are your words given to us. And as Paul stated in 2 Timothy, all scripture is God-breathed. Lord, we thank you. We need a revival in this land and as we can see. It comes through the power of your word. May we be mindful of that even today. In Jesus' name, amen.